Timothy chapter 4, if you would. First Timothy chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 for our passage today. You know, I, um, I spend quite a bit of time uh, working out physically with, uh, with several people who are here today. And it's good to see Andy. Normally it's uh, zero dark 30 and we're dressed differently when we see each other. But um, so I, I like to work out. I like to, I like to exercise. I like to try and be fit. And uh, today's passage, the heart, the key of the passage, he talks about training yourself for godliness. And he's using a physical training metaphor. And so there were like, you know, bombs going off in my brain because I thought, oh, I can really, you know, two of my passions coming together, God's word, what he says, and then, and then fitness. And, and so it was really, really tempting to make a big, giant, tortured metaphor that you were all going to have to wander all the way through uh, with me this morning. But I'll resist. I'll resist, however tempting it may be. But uh, we're going to look at our, our passage today in First Timothy chapter 4. And... Um, let me read it, and then we'll pray together. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you that you speak to us. You don't leave us in the dark. Uh, Lord, I think of this so often that it, had you not given us your word, we'd be, we'd be stumbling around like, like, um, like, like the blind in the dark, leading the blind, trying to find truth, and, and uh, we'd be stuck. But we're not stuck because you have given us your word. And so, uh, Lord, this morning I pray that you would take your word and that you would open it to us. I pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, have his way in this place, that you would work in hearts and in minds that we would be receptive to what you have to say. Lord, I pray that, um, that we would uh, take those things that distract us, that are occupying our minds, maybe even right now, that we would take those things and submit them to you and that we would focus fully on what you are saying to us this morning. Lord, teach us from your word and do your work. We look forward to seeing what you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our passage starts off today, if you put these things before the brothers. So what things, right? What things? Anytime you see something like that, you've got to figure out what he's talking about. And so I believe he's talking about all of chapter 2 and essentially all of chapter 3 and the first part of chapter 4. So flip back just to uh, chapter 2, and we'll kind of work through that very quickly to kind of gain momentum up to uh, what we're doing today so that we kind of know what's going on. He, um, he starts off in chapter 2, and he, he says that he, he wants us to pray for everyone, especially our leaders, 
because that provides the kind of soil, right, where the gospel can go forth and people can be saved. That's the direction of his prayer. That's what he wants to see happen. And that's what he says God wants to see happen is that people would hear the word of God, that they would respond and that they would trust in Christ. And so he wants us to pray that direction, thinking about the gospel going out to nations, right? So, so he wants us to pray in that regard. And then he spends a paragraph talking about the different, different roles of men and women in the church and different function. He says, he says, men, I want you to, to, to pray in this way with holy hands and with no anger, no quarreling, right? And he, he says, women, there, there, there are certain functions that I would like you to do and certain functions I'd like you not to do in the church context. And, uh, and he talks about that in that second paragraph in chapter 2. And then he talks about qualifications for overseers in the beginning of chapter 3. This is what someone who's an overseer in the church should look like. He should have these characteristics. He should be able to teach right, these other things in there. And then he switches and he says, these are the qualifications for deacons. So it sounds like he's putting the church together. Right. He's kind of saying, this is what I want you to be about. This is what I want you to be doing. You should be praying together. You should be functioning in this capacity. You should have this sort of leadership. Right. You should be seeking together for the gospel to go out into the nations that people would be saved. So that's kind of what he's doing there. And then you get to the bottom, the end of chapter three. And he talks about the mystery of godliness. He takes this the gospel in a nutshell truth about christ right and he focuses on it and he praises god for it right and he wants to lift it up and he wants to have that as the center of our teaching being the gospel truth about christ and salvation in christ right so that's how he finishes chapter three and then he starts chapter four again we're just moving through how the passage works how the book works get into the beginning of chapter four and he says there are going to be some people who ditch that that kernel of truth that what you need to hang on to, that thing that, that is central, it's the bedrock. People are going to bail on that. They're going to depart from the faith. There are going to be some people who will ditch that and they will go other directions. They'll pursue other things, right? Their consciences are seared, etc. They ditch the faith. And so he says in verse 6 of chapter 4, if you put these things that we just said before the brothers, then you will be a good servant, Right? So he's, he's reminding, he wants, he wants Timothy to make sure and tell the people because uh, this is part of what it means to be a good servant is what he says here, right? So I, I, I cover chapter 2 and chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 to bring us up to speed, right? So we can start our passage here. So first of all, he starts talking about a good servant. There in verse 6, he says, he says, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, right? Uh, if you have put these things before the brothers, right, and being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. I want to focus first on trained in the words of the faith there. The words of the faith, by that he means the gospel. He means the basic truth of the gospel. Being trained in that, right, that's something that we know. Our passage, my, my version uses the word trained a couple different times in here. This first reference is not a it's not the working out metaphor. It's the, it's the being disciplined to have developed certain habits in your life. You've been brought up to speed, right? You've been, you've been trained in this, right? This is the way you function. This is how you do this. This is what it looks like, right, to be trained in the words of the faith. So first of all, how, how are you trained in the faith? How are you trained in the gospel, the words of the faith? Well, first of all, you have to believe it for yourself, right? You've got to believe the gospel for yourself. That's step one. 
you can't start down this road of being a good servant and of being trained in the gospel, the words of the faith, without believing it yourself, right? And so with Timothy, of course, of course, Paul knows about Timothy that he's, he's a Christian. He knows the Lord. He's worked with this man a long time, right? He knows him very well. But the first step towards becoming a good servant is to believe the gospel for yourself. That means we, we have to have come to the point where we understand there exists a holy God, and I'm not him. Instead, I'm a, I'm a finite man, and worse, not just finite, I am fallen. I have sin in my life. I have sin in my heart, and there's nothing I can do to correct that. It's there, and it's a part of me. It's like a stain on me. I can't get rid of it. It's who I am. And before a holy God, who is also all-powerful, that is bad news. Because he's my creator. I am subject to him. And I'm in rebellion to him. That's what my sin means. That's a part of the gospel. And so God sends his son, Jesus. We sang about this so much this morning. Sends his son, Jesus, to come and take that stain on himself. To take my guilt on himself so that he can pay that penalty that I owe before God. And he dies on the cross to pay that penalty. God raises him from the dead, declaring, I accept your payment. And then he ascends back to the Father. And I, if I will look to Christ and trust in him and say, I know I have this stain and I know it's deadly, it is fatal to me. The result of this stain in my life, unless God does something, is hell. And what God offers to do is have Jesus take my place. That's the exchange that he offers. So if I put my faith in Christ and I say, Jesus, I owe this penalty and I can't pay it, but you died on the cross for me. Take that penalty for me. Forgive me of my sin that I can be clean. And he does. And not only does he forgive our sin, he gives us his righteousness. That's the, that's the heart of the gospel. And so if, if we're going to be a good servant... We have to start with that, realizing all of those truths in our own life, trusting in him, trusting in him. I, I use the illustration again. I was talking, talking with someone uh, this week or last week about faith and what is faith. And I pulled out my favorite illustration, the chair, right? Pulled the chair out and talked about this sturdy chair. It looks like a good chair and you, you all agree it would hold me up. Uh, but I don't trust in it until I sit on the thing. And then I am displaying that I trust in that chair. And it's the same with Christ. It's the same with him. I can say, yeah, he, he died for, for the sins of the world. But until I put my faith and say, I have no other payment for the sin that I have except for what Christ did. So I trust in him. Until then, I don't really trust in him. So first, the first step is believing in it for your own salvation. The second step is learning how to share that with other people. Right? We're not just saved to keep it to ourselves. Right? You go and share. I have a friend who, who uh, got saved. I don't remember if it was morning or I don't, around midday sometime. And he led someone to Christ that afternoon because he went and told people. Right? That's what it is. Go and tell someone. You have to be trained in it. You've got to believe it yourself. And you have to be able to share it, learn how to share it with other people. Right? And not only that, but you have to have your life and your conduct reshaped around the truths of the gospel they've been reshaped around the truths of the gospel I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more but but an example right now would be that uh 
when I come to understand truly that God is holy and I am neither God nor holy, I am sinful, that uh, I'm able to give the next guy a little bit of grace for not being perfect. Because I'm not. And my right relationship with Christ is not because I became perfect or because I edged ever closer towards perfection or anything like that. It was a free gift. And so I can give you grace when you show me that you also are less than perfect. So first of all, he's trained in the gospel. Secondly, he's trained in good doctrine. He has learned to think deeply about what the gospel tells us about who God is, who man is, what's the nature of sin, what's the nature of salvation, what's the nature of God's grace. The truths of the gospel start telling us things that are that are true about God, start telling us things that are true about ourselves. And when we think about this, not just the gospel itself, but the doctrine that comes out of it, the ideas, the truths in Scripture that come out of it, we start seeing a new level of training is what he uses here, being trained in good doctrine. So it's when we come to understand what the truths of the gospel mean in the various moral and ethical situations that we face in life all kinds of situations we face, understanding and being trained by the gospel helps me make different decisions when I think about moral situations or when I think about ethical situations, right? If I have, what do I do in this situation? Well, what does the gospel tell me? What does the gospel tell me about that situation and how I should act? Like the idea of abortion, for example. That's a that's a that's a problem in our culture that is massive. Since the year I was born, which is the year of Roe v. Wade, there have been about 55 or 56 million American babies aborted. That's a major issue. And we have a couple of ways we can think about that, a couple of avenues to think about. One is the issue itself of abortion, which needs to be dealt with. That needs to be solved. And we as a nation need to repent of that. We have we have a, a battle on our hands in that regard because God values children enormously. He values human life enormously. And here we are allowing this to continue. That's one side. On the other side, we also live amongst people who have dealt with abortion in their own lives. What do we do with that? Well, if, if, if I take the charge to them like I want to take it to the issue, we're going to destroy people. Remember I said earlier about offering grace to those who are not perfect? None of us is perfect, and the salvation that I have was a gift anyway. I didn't earn it. And so when, I, when I'm talking to someone who has maybe had an, an abortion herself or maybe a couple who's had an abortion or something like that, the gospel makes me change my mind and think differently about that because now God is offering forgiveness to this person. And the ministry looks entirely different when you're talking to an individual as opposed to when you're addressing the issue. And I think sometimes when we talk about major issues like this, we can lump the people in with the issue, and man, we cause damage. Man, we cause damage. This issue needs to be fought. Abortion needs to be done away with, period. End of story. There is forgiveness for those who've experienced it. There is forgiveness. The gospel and good doctrine helps us think in those terms. But also, 
A good servant must be willing to speak the truth. He started off there in verse 6 by saying, and almost all versions say this, if you put these things before the brothers, etc., you'll be a good servant. But the New American Standard got it right. It, the if is not there. What he says is, by putting these things, you will be a good servant. By putting these things before the brother. There's no question that Timothy was going to do this, right? There wasn't, Timothy wasn't some wimp, right? He was there ministering. Paul was just saying to him, this is another aspect of being a good servant. Put these things before the brothers. Be willing to step out. Be willing to speak the truth. A good servant is someone who has learned the value of God's truth, God's truth, and has learned that that truth is worth defending wherever and whenever it's attacked, whether it's comfortable or not, to defend it. He says, Timothy, defend it. Speak up. Say these things, even to these people you've been working with and might cause uncomfortable relationships, etc. A good servant is someone who has become convinced that relational and social comfort is less important than speaking the truth in love. This is a fault for me. This is a problem area for me because I, I would rather just not speak up and cause friction. I really kind of like to avoid conflict if I can. And so, so very often I, I will keep my mouth closed when God is saying, Brennan, open your mouth. A good servant is willing to speak the truth. All right, so we've looked at verse 6. We've talked about what it means to be a good servant. Our second point there, verses 7 and 8, a good servant trains himself in godliness. Trains himself in godliness. Now, before I start my list there, you've got various bullets in, in this point number 2, right? Before I start that, I want to remind us, flip back to chapter 2, if you would, and see how he started the first paragraph in chapter 2, he says, First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. Prayer. Look how he starts the second paragraph. Verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Okay? So he has set a baseline. He has set a foundation of prayer in all of this. Okay? So that's undergirding this whole thing. As he, is, he is telling the people to be a praying people to be crying out to God for these various things, to be praying together, to be praying individually, to be a people of prayer. So when I talk about a good servant training himself for godliness, he has as an underlying unspoken thing, prayer, pray. It takes prayer. That's been the theme of uh, one of the themes of the letter so far is prayer. So that, that to begin with, okay? Now here is where the athletic metaphor comes in. And I was you know, kind of itching to really dive into this one because I, I want to pursue this, but I don't think it'll be the best direction for us to go. So I'll kind of I'll kind of limit myself here on the first point. All right, I'll indulge myself a little on this first point. First of all, we need to reject uh, junk teaching. Okay, he says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths, right? And here's the only, um, this is probably the only metaphor I'm going to use here, but it's it's like if you're trying to get in shape and you're still eating sugar. You're still eating junk food. You're going to make progress if you ditch that stuff. Okay, step one, ditch that stuff, okay, and then move on. And that's what he's saying here, right? He's saying that if, if, you, want to, if you want to train yourself for godliness, this is where, you know, it's, it's a working out kind of metaphor. Step one is ditch the junk food, ditch the junk teaching, right? Now, 
He's talking about the myths and endless genealogies that these false teachers were, were talking about, the irreverent babble, right, that was going on. They were, they were fascinated with the little details that they imagined between the verses in the Old Testament, right? And, and they, they, were, they were building stuff that wasn't really there. It was, they were developing a mythology around the Old Testament. It wasn't really there. And not only were they developing a mythology, that's bad enough, but then they were teaching and saying, okay, from this mythology, therefore, these truths are what we teach, Right. That's several steps removed from from uh, from good teaching. And he says, avoid all of that stuff. Just ditch all of that stuff. Stay away from it. Don't pay any attention to it. Get rid of it. Right. Get rid of the junk teaching. And so I thought about in our day, you know, what what this might be, because we don't we don't have too many people influencing us who are digging into, you know, old making Old Testament mythology and trying to teach us stuff from it. That that ha- might happen occasionally. But it's not, it's not a major theme that's going on. I thought about uh, when I was at, uh, in school in the 90s, the Bible code was a big deal. I think, I think that, was, that was something that, uh, that was just sort of peripheral, um, at best maybe irrelevant, and destructive probably, right? Bible code. Another one of those, there was a fascination with uh, the Gospel of Thomas, or the Gnostic Gospels and stuff like that. And, oh, this is, a, you know, a fifth gospel. And it, it says something so different. And we get fascinated with this thing that was written, you know, 100 or 200 years after the New Testament was written, right? By those who were not there, eyewitnesses, obviously, right? It says stuff contradictory to what the people who were eyewitnesses said, etc. And people get fixated on the Gospel of Thomas and what it teaches us. Maybe. But I, I really don't think that influences us too much. Uh, maybe, maybe some of us get into that, but <clears throat> here's another one that's a little bit more closer to home that, that might be something that's, that's uh, a fixation that we shouldn't have. And that's an, an undue and unhealthy uh, fascination with, are we in the end times, right? And, and you're reading the newspaper, scouring the newspaper, and then you're trying to read and understand Revelation and, you know, uh, uh, Daniel, you know, and, and Ezekiel and trying to put all this stuff together and, and try that. That's your fascination. And when you think Bible study, that's what you do. And when you think a spiritual conversation, what you're thinking is talking about the, the beast and the antichrist and the, this and the, that, right. Right. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we shouldn't consider those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't study eschatology. What I'm saying is there is a, a temptation for us to stop discussing what scripture says about how I should live my life and instead switch over here and start talking about something that may or may not be true that's that's kind of from the Bible but it's not really impacting my life and I'm majoring on this minor thing you understand what I mean that may, maybe that's a possibility right that's that's one here here's another one that I think is probably a little bit closer to home maybe it's an example would be when we look to psychology to solve spiritual problems. Maybe that's another way, right? Not to chuck out psychology entirely. But if, if we're using psychology to solve spiritual problems in my life, we have a disconnect. Okay? We're getting our teaching regarding s- extremely important stuff from something less reliable than this. Right? Maybe, maybe that's a little more closer... Uh, closer to home maybe that's a little uncomfortable for us we want to solve problems maybe parenting issues psychologically when really it's a spiritual issue right 
Maybe we want to solve relational problems or, or some other thing with, with psychology instead of dealing with it biblically if it's a spiritual issue. So maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's an example, right? And what he's saying here is have nothing to do with that. Don't be majoring on that stuff. Don't be distracted by that stuff. Don't be drawn in, right? Don't be drawn into that stuff. Major in the major stuff, not in the minors, right? And so he moves on in, his, in the second bullet here. He talks about embracing the gospel, embracing the gospel. Reject that stuff, reject the sugar, right? And embrace the gospel, right? So this is kind of a rehash of, of point one there, right? First of all, you got to believe it. You got to believe it yourself. You got to learn to share it with other people. You got to be able to tell other people about it. And you need to be shaped in your own personal life by it. In your own relationships, be shaped by it. So embrace the gospel. Thirdly, embrace the Bible. Embrace the Bible. And I don't mean snuggle it, right? You can snuggle your Bible, that's fine. But it won't teach you much that way. But embrace the Bible. You need to study it. You need to start understanding it. One, one simple way, if uh, as a very basic thing and and um, a friend of mine recommended this to me. It's, it's called 30 Days to Understanding the Bible by Max Anders. It's very basic. Okay, it's very basic. For some of you, you would you'd read through this and you would think, well, I'm, you know, I learned two things out of that or whatever. But for some of us, it's extremely helpful. And the, re- the way it's helpful is because it lays out the framework of Scripture to help you understand it, to give you a big picture map of what the Bible's talking about, Right. I've talked about this before that, you know, if, if you um, if you're trying to figure out where Gabs is on the map, right? First of all, you're not alone trying to figure out where Gabs is on the map. But if you had a big picture of, you know, the surrounding counties or maybe the entire state of Nevada, you just had a just a, not a detailed thing, but just a snapshot. OK, here's Fallon. OK, there's Gabs. You're good to go. Right. That gives you a very good idea. It's not a detailed. It's not your GPS coordinates to get there. Right. It's a big picture thing. This is a big picture thing to understanding the Bible, right? It talks about the structure of Scripture. It talks about basic Bible doctrines and how to understand them. It, it, uh, it summarizes stuff like angelology, what the Bible says about angels. Very basic, very quick. It's not in-depth. So that's one way to embrace the Bible, to study something like that. <clears throat> or maybe you just start reading the Bible on your own uh, and with other people. This is one of the huge values of small group. I just, I love this about small group. We get together, read the Bible and talk about it. There's nothing, you know, genius there. <laughs> it's the Bible and we read it and we talk about it. And we're embracing the Bible. And so that's, that's one thing that we can do. And if, if, you, uh, if you want to start reading this week, it turns out today is, is Palm Sunday. Next week is Resurrection Sunday, right? So you've got Good Friday coming up. This is called the Passion Week. We call this the Passion Week. It's, uh, it's, it's a, a week that's really focused on in Scripture that starts with uh, the triumphal entry and ends with really the resurrection uh, next Sunday. And so it's a very important week. So if you want to start and you just want to start embracing the Bible, write down this or flip to Matthew chapter 21 and read a chapter a day throughout this week. That'll take you through the Passion Week, right? So... So just start in Matthew chapter 21. It's simple. And, and maybe it's difficult for you to understand, so read it with someone else or talk to someone else about it. Ask somebody who, who knows the Bible uh, some questions, right? Start memorizing some key verses or passages alone or, or with a friend. If, if you do it with a friend, all of a sudden you've got accountability, right? 
Now, I love Monty being up here sharing the memory verses because he's got great accountability, right? The rest of us, not so much because we're out there and only he can see when we're going, you know, we don't really know the verse. He's got great accountability. So if you tell someone else, now all of a sudden you're, you're obligated, right? You're, you're in. So start memorizing some key, some key verses or, or some key passages that really speak to an issue in your life. Do that with somebody. That's a simple step. We're talking about training yourself for godliness. We're talking about growing in your own Christian life, right? And, and he says, train yourself. So embrace the gospel. First of all, reject junk teaching. Embrace the gospel. Embrace the Bible. And then next, embrace good doctrine. These are all from our passage right here. Embrace good doctrine. Okay, the word doctrine is scary for some folks, right? They have an ir- irrational fear of the word doctrine. Right? Maybe they've been in that Bible study before, and I've led these Bible studies sometimes, by the way. They get so doctrinal that only the guys who are doctrinal nerds really enjoy it, and everyone else is thinking, you know, what time are we done already? You know, I'm hungry. I need to get out of here. Maybe it's, maybe it's that that causes people to be afraid of doctrine. I don't know. But embrace good doctrine. Now, I have a couple of examples here. This is, uh, this is by Wayne Grudem and his son, Elliot Grudem. It's called Christian Beliefs, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know, right? Wayne Grudem is a, is a reliable guy. He's, he's an excellent uh, theology teacher, and this is a short little book, and it's 20 basics. So you could go through this. If you're a self-starter, you could read this on your own and answer your own questions, and you, it would be a great start for you to be embracing good doctrine. If you're not so much of a self-starter, get with somebody. Henry and I meet together and, and read through, not that one, but this one, which is, yeah. I had to have help carrying this thing up here. It's also by Wayne Grudem, and it's called Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine. And it is an excellent book. Don't, don't let the size fool you, okay? You, you think this must be the driest thing ever, and Henry and I love reading it. I mean, we're... we're um, 762 pages into it. It's taken us a year or so, but we love it. And it's good stuff. It's Bible doctrine. It's teaching us what the Bible teaches about a given subject, right? So embrace good doctrine. Maybe ask someone with a little more spiritual maturity to meet and study through something like that together, right? It'd, it'd be good for the guy leading it too, by the way, not not just for you because it's, it's educational stuff. And what it's doing is it's helping us understand... Remember I said big picture stuff, you know, the big picture of Nevada. And I said, there's Fallon, there's Gabs. Well, it turns out there are a lot of details in there and there are other cities. Well, really towns in Nevada, but we'll call them cities. Okay. There are other places you could go. There are mountain ranges and a lot of things to fill in that are important that if you ever find yourself traveling somewhere else in Nevada, you probably need to know something else other than just Fallon and Gabs. Okay. I'm guessing, right? So. When you're studying doctrine, it's like, filling in, it's like filling in the rest of the map. You need to know what I-80 is like, right? You need to know where the other roads go and what roads to totally avoid, right? You need to know that kind of stuff. You need to know the, the places that, uh, well, I was going to say the places you could speed and not get caught, but we'll, we'll move on. So ask someone, meet with someone, talk about this stuff. Just read together, talk together, right? Then learn to think about what the Bible says about an issue that's important in your life. What's something you're facing right now? I, I don't know what it, what it might be. Parenting. I mean, our, we have a lot of 
a lot of young kids in our, in our small group. And so we, you know, parenting is a big issue. So we could learn something doctrinally about, okay, what does that mean about parenting? Bible says that uh, we're all born in sin and are naturally rebellious against God. I wonder if my cute little baby is born in sin and rebellious against God. You'll find out soon if you haven't. All right. So study, learn, teach yourself, train yourself, get with other people who know and learn. Learn this stuff. Embrace good doctrine. And then understand and obey. Okay, I'm kind of going to go back in a second. I'm going to go back to the workout metaphor because I think it's a good thing. I think it, it, it fits in this passage. But as you get a better and better grip on ultimate truth and the reality uh, from Scripture, then your life begins to be reshaped in certain key ways according to this new grasp of reality, right? Now, we talked about the false teachers from the previous section, the previous paragraph. Those false teachers didn't they were they were calloused in their hearts their hearts were seared in their conscience they 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 weren't obedient to the truth that they knew and what ended up happening they made shipwreck of their faith they end up in destruction because they yeah they knew some stuff but they didn't really care about it they didn't live their lives according to it and it got farther and farther from them until pretty soon they live like this and oh yeah that stuff way over there i kind of used to believe that right and so the, the truth that we learn, the things that we learn, we need to respond in obedience. Here's, here, here's, uh, here's where my, my workout metaphor comes back in. Think about a given, you probably don't, I, I think about, you know, running and, you know, proper squats and things like, no one else thinks about that stuff, no one cares. But think about running, okay? I ran for a couple of years, and the reason I got into running is because I knew I needed to, and so I told Al Munoz, Hey, I want to start running. That is bad news. If you ever utter those syllables to Al Munoz, you'll find yourself running pretty soon because he will ask you. He still asks me, so you're still running? No, I'm not. I ran for a couple of years, okay? Man, my knees were bothering me. I had hip problems. My lower back was all sore. I ran a race up in Reno and, and both my knees got hurt. I was out for like a month, right? And uh, come to find out, there's a right way to run and a wrong way to run. And I learned that the hard way, right? And I had been running the wrong way and I'd been suffering the consequences. Now, when someone explained to me a different way to run, I had an option. I had choices, right? I could either change the way I was running and thus get rid of those symptoms and those problems, or I could keep doing it the way I'd always been doing it, right? Now, I had the option to keep doing it the way I'd always been doing it. But I had, was pretty motivated not to, and you understand why, after you've had a few knee injuries and pain and all that kind of stuff, right? But I had to respond to it. I had to start running differently in light of understanding how I was designed to run. Did you know God didn't make us with shoes on our feet, right? That affected my running when I thought about that. That changed the way I run a little bit. Doctrine actually affected my running, strange, right? Respond to it. Knowing good form is not the same as practicing good form, right? So, so when we hear something, we, we need to do it. When we understand new truth, we need to respond to it, right? Be sensitive to it and respond to it and do it. Otherwise, pretty soon you end up like these false teachers who were practicing this over here and fiddling with this kind of doctrine and had left the truth. They had made shipwreck of their faith. That's the phrase Paul uses. So understand and obey. And then finally, Stick with it. 
stick with it. Turns out progress doesn't happen quickly, usually. You've got some pain to go through and you've got, you've got some work ahead of you. You've got to stick with it. Just stick with it and keep doing it. Keep doing it. He says to him, train yourself, train yourself. Now, we don't get that in English, but it's in the present tense. The idea is keep training yourself and keep training yourself. It's ongoing. It doesn't stop. Keep training yourself. Stick with it. Stick with it day in, day out. I fell. I failed. Get up. Stick with it. Stick with it. He also says in the end of verse seven there, he talks about this good doctrine Oh, I lost it here. You know, the end of verse six. Being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Doggedly. With perseverance, persistently, tenaciously followed. Followed. Stick with it. Stick with it. Stick with it. Change doesn't happen quickly. Sanctification, growth in the spiritual life doesn't happen quickly, but stick with it. Stick with it. And then why? Why do this? He says the end of verse 7 there, rather train yourself for godliness for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Physical fitness is a good thing. But when this body dies... No matter how fit it was, it's staying here. It will not benefit me into eternity. I'll I'll get a new body. So will you. So it's not going to benefit me into eternity. Godliness, however, has benefit in this life, or rather, more specifically, the translation should be, it has the benefit of life now. It gives you life now, godliness does. And it gives you life in the future. Eternal life is not something distant. It's not pie in the sky. It's not out there somewhere after you die. It starts now. Eternal life starts now. That's a new thing. And so investing in godliness, being, digging in and embracing the gospel, embracing doctrine, embracing the Bible, You're training yourself in a way that's going to benefit you for eternity, not just to death. That is the value of godliness. Finally, a good servant trains himself in godliness to be on mission with God, to be on mission with God. The words he says there, toil and strive, they're words that Paul very often uses talking about his own missionary work, talking about the way he's been traveling around and suffering, etc., sharing the gospel, training, teaching other people so that they can hear the gospel, so that they can respond to the gospel, so that they can be trained in the gospel, and so that they can be trained in godliness. This is the stuff he's been investing, right? It's his, it's his own mission work. And so, first of all, that's why I say trained to be on mission with God. He's talking about mission. I, I said it before that we were not saved. We don't become Christians just so we can have this little beautiful treasure that we keep right here. 
and don't let anyone else look at. We're saved for the purpose of being on mission, right? He talks about the living God, the living, life-giving God. And I think that's why he says the living God. God himself is the living God. He's not dead. He's alive. He's always been alive. He's always been living. He is the living God. He will never die. He will never stop existing, right? He's ongoing. He's ongoing. And as such, because of that, he's also the author of life. He's the living God who gives life. And we were just talking about eternal life, eternal life in the now and eternal life in the future. And that comes from him. He's the author. He's the giver of life. Even physical life on this earth comes from him. We can't create life. We can't do it. We can put everything else kind of structured in the right way. And it's up to him to create life. He's the only one who can do that. And he is with us on this mission. We have our hope set on him. We have our hope fixed in him. And finally, this mission with God includes salvation to all. Listen to the way he ends there. He says, for to this end, we toil and strive, verse 10, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Salvation is to go out to all. Now, does this mean that therefore everyone born will be saved? We would say no. And here's why we would say no. First John five eleven and 12 reminds us that only those who have the son have life. You don't have the son of God. You don't have life. So it's tied to faith in Christ. It's tied to faith in Christ. Or as John's going to say in, in John 1, 12, he says to all who did receive him, that is to all who did receive Jesus. What does that mean? To those who believed in his name, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Right. Salvation is offered broadly. We've talked about this. Salvation is offered broadly to all, but it's only to those who receive, to those who believe, who are actually saved. And that's what he's talking about here in this passage. He says exactly that. He says, for to this end, we toil and strive. We're on our missionary work. We're sharing the gospel. To that end, we're doing it because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all people, especially those who believe, or specifically those who believe, or that is those who believe. All right, salvation is, is to those people, which explains why Paul would be willing to toil and strive and travel and do all the things that he did and suffer the way he did and die as a martyr for people, right? For people's salvation, taking this message of the gospel to other people so that they would know because if they don't believe, they do not have the eternal life. That means they're separated from God forever. That means they're in hell. Paul is motivated. He's out there and he's doing it. And he says that for us, the good servant, the good servant has some characteristics. He trains himself for godliness, not just so he can be, you know, a superstar for Jesus, but so that he can be a witness for Jesus. He's, he's gotten himself fit spiritually. And then what's he going to do with it? Nothing. That doesn't make any sense. He's gotten himself fit spiritually so that he can go out and minister to other people. Paul says it similarly in um, Romans 1.5. He says that uh, regarding God's grace and calling in his own life, he says that it was for the purpose to, of bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That was the purpose of Paul being saved. That was the purpose of Paul being called is to bring about the obedience of faith. 
for the sake of his name among all the nations to go everywhere. That's why God saved him. And that's why God has saved us. Paul and Timothy weren't just saved for their own good. They were called into salvation in Christ in order that they would go and call others too to come to Christ for salvation. Proper response of receiving eternal life is first of all to rejoice in it and then to take it immediately to others, to take it to others, to make it known to others, to become a witness telling other people about it. That's the point of our passage. Spiritual fitness. Train yourself for godliness for the purpose of taking it to other people. That's the challenge for me. This is, this is meant to be a very practical message. Very practical. I tried to give steps for how you can grow, how you can, how you can learn some things, how you can train yourself, right? But it's not just training so we can all sit around and look at each other's spiritual muscles, right? It's training so we can go out and minister, so we can tell people, so we can tell others. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission talks about one of the first steps of becoming a witness, uh, a witness of Christ, being a disciple of Christ, is being baptized. And so uh, we're going to have a, a baptism next week, and I've got, we've got three people right now who are going to be baptized this, this next week because they, they want to take this simple first step of, uh, of becoming a, a disciple, of showing you all and showing us and declaring to the world that they're followers of Christ. And so we're going to do that next week. And so if um, we're, we're going to offer another, another baptismal time uh, in, in like a month, maybe. Uh, so if, you know, if, if you're thinking, well, I really want to get baptized and, and uh, we'll come, come talk to us and we'll see if we can put that together um, for, for this next month. If you're really, really, really burning to get baptized on Easter Sunday, Come and talk to me or come and talk to Woody and we'll see if we can make that happen. But this is, this is showing other people, displaying to other people, explaining to other people, I'm a follower of Christ. This is what I'm about, right? And so it's an exciting time. This, this baptism is, uh, is, is going to be a neat time and I get to baptize my daughter, so I'm excited about that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let me pray for us and, uh, and then we'll, we'll depart. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you that it's practical and it's a big picture at the same time. It teaches us about who we are and about how we can grow in our spiritual lives. And uh, Lord, um, it teaches us about the gospel and about the truth that we, uh, we, we can be your children by faith in your son. What an amazing thing. Lord, I pray for, um, for all of us that, that we would think about these things, that we would be willing to maybe begin to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that, that we would do away with the junk, that we would embrace the gospel, that we would embrace the Bible, that we would embrace good, sound doctrine, and that we would stick with it, that we would understand things, that we would obey them, that we would grow. Lord, I pray for those in here, maybe who don't know you, I pray that, uh, that the words of the gospel would, uh, would have impact in their heart, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would want to know more about what it means to trust in Christ. So Lord, I pray that you would do that work. Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. This is from 1 Thessalonians 5, and then I'll let you go. Now,